Today on the Tech Reset Show, we are excited to have Hector Hughes. In addition to being just a really great guy, Hector is the co-founder of Unplugged based in the UK and brings some very interesting perspectives on how technology is impacting our lives and how we can all benefit from slowing things down just a little bit. Let's jump right in and welcome Hector Hughes. Hector, thanks for joining the Tech Reset Show. We're so excited to have you today. Forrest, great to be here going to be a good conversation. Before we jump in, one question we'd like to ask everyone is, what's something tech-related that you wish you could improve, a habit that you wish you could improve on for yourself specifically? That is a great point. I think one one thing I've embarrassed to admit, but I found myself doing, is just this like switching between, especially when I'm like, you know, slightly low in the afternoon or something, just switching between messaging platforms like email, WhatsApp, et cetera, and, and just mind numbing. So I wish I could improve on that. It's obviously a, a gradual process, as you know, but that's something I picked up on recently. Fair enough. And I think we all have room for a little bit of improvement with tech in our lives. So you know, let's jump in. You know, I know your story. I'm a huge fan of your company, Unplugged. But let's, for all of our listeners, maybe start from the beginning. Tell us a little bit more about the company, what you do. We're going to unpack a lot of things specific to the benefits and all the different cabins. But uh, yeah, give us the overview of the company. And then I'd love to hear your story of how you got here. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I guess can start there. And me and my co-founder, Ben, actually met at a tech startup. So we were two early employees. We did the whole high growth, international expansion, launched offices in the US, Australia. So all very exciting, bit of a shit show behind the scenes as, as these things often are, but re- really good experience, learned a lot. But then just started to get burnt out with it. You know, I think started to kind of lose my joy for life, was spending my time flying around the world to set up these offices, spending all day on my phone and was just busy and started to get more and more dissatisfied with that, but didn't really know what to do. And then a friend of mine recommended this silent retreat in the Himalayas. And when they said that first, I laughed it off. I thought I can't go and stay with a bunch of monks on a, a mountain, as, as Ben would say. But after a while, I just thought, you know, why not give it a try? So in September 2019, flew to the Himalayas. It was a 10-day silent retreat, this beautiful Buddhist temple on top of a mountain. And the best thing about it is when you get there, they take your phone off you and you just spend 10 days completely cut off from the outside world. So very cliche, but I came back from that, quit my job a week later. And that was off the back of a conversation with Ben. So he's not the kind of guy you'd find a silent retreat anytime soon. And we spoke about how there's a lot of stigma around retreats and meditation. And so much of the benefit is, is just getting people you know, offline and, and into nature. And so we saw a big opportunity there. I'd heard about this quite an active cabin movement, let's say tiny house movement worldwide. Cabins are great because they have sex appeal, for lack of a better phrase. So you know, if you really want to affect change in this world, you, you need to make it sexy and cabins do that. So I so just thought the two went together really nicely. So the concept of Unplugged, which was born out of this, is we put cabins an hour or two for city life. People go literally lock their phones in a box. We give them a map and a Nokia and just leave them to it for three nights. So we launched our first cabin just after the first lockdown, ordered it about a month before COVID hit, which turned out to be great timing, you know, because everyone had spent three months in flats in London, basically just on their phones on their laptops. And so I think people were really ready for it. So we got very fortunate with that, got a ton of PR and have really just grown from there. So that was three years ago. We've now got 20 cabins across the UK and you know, big, big plans to expand. So all heading in the right direction. Well, that's great. Well, congrats on the growth. Let's rewind a bit though. The silent retreat that you went on while you were getting burnt out, was that the first silent retreat or kind of digitally toxic type retreat you'd ever done? Yeah, it was. Yeah. I'd been getting more into, you know, meditation, like reading, just started, starting to think about a few more of these things. So I read Cal Newport's book or, or a couple of his books out in the year, but especially digital minimalism, which I think was a, a real eye opener for me. Cause I think, I mean, I'm sure you see this a lot, but it's so 
like subconscious, like we all kind of feel like that there's something not healthy. But I think up until that point in my life, I'd never like, it never really clicked that actually a lot of the kind of stress and dissatisfaction was just coming from like being constantly online. So it never occurred to me. I, I probably hadn't spent, definitely hadn't spent a day offline in probably the decade prior to that. So yeah, it was a real eye-opener. And it, it's only when you take it away that you realize exactly what we lose. And, and what was that like? Was the first few days just extremely challenging or was it 30 minutes in, you felt free and much less stressed? Somewhere in between. So there was definitely a euphoria at the start of like, oh my God, I have actually just got this time. It just felt like a real gift. And I was so ready for it. Got all the way you know, out there and I took a journal at the time, kept the journal and I uh, read, read it back a few times. And the first day I was like grumbling, had some like you know, stomach problems and tired after the traveling and everything like that. But then as soon as you put the phone away or they take it off you, it's just so liberating because it's like suddenly all those things that were going to go through my mind just don't matter for 10 days. So that was, that was quite magical. But then you go through, it's a real roller coaster. Like you go through, went through all the emotions. So there are times halfway through, I'm like, what am I doing here? You're kind of questioning everything. So it really takes time to kind of get it out of your system. And you, and you, you look back with such a rose tinted view of these things, but yeah, it's tough. It's uncomfortable. And, you know, we are. So dependent on our phones that there is that kind of initial discomfort, like reaching for your pocket, you, you kind of almost feel more anxious the first day, at least. So it, it really takes time for the weight to drop off, I think. It's so interesting. Phantom vibration syndrome is, it, syndrome is real. You, you actually think that you're getting a notification and grab for something that's not there. It's just fascinating. So the burnout that led to this first retreat that you went on, let's talk about that a little bit more. How do you define burnout? What did that mean for you? What was your environment like that led you to need to completely detox from tech and go on a silent retreat? I'm using burnout very broadly. We have a idea that it's this very dramatic kind of flaming out, which happens obviously. But I do think there's a kind of broader, like low-key burnout that's much more widely spread. And I mean, looking back, it really was just, was waking up just less excited each day, less kind of joyful and swept along and affected by the trials and tribulations of life. And I think there was just a deep dissatisfaction. So a couple of things, I think it was probably not having quite figured out what I wanted to, to do in life, maybe to some extent, but also just that caught up in the busyness. I think so much of why we're busy is like a lot of it comes from a place of insecurity where you know, we feel like we need to be doing more things. And I think when I'm at my busiest, which happens still to this day, I'll go through periods of being very busy. It's when I feel like I need to get the business further, to do whatever it is, to, to learn a new thing. And then looking back, it was never the right thing to do. And actually it's taking things more chilled and being more mindful with how I approach things, that's more effective in the long term. I think that for me personally, it, it probably came from a place of insecurity, like not having figured things out myself. And to be honest, not being comfortable in myself, I just wasn't comfortable completely in my own skin. So the silent retreat was great for flushing that out. I think it, it comes and goes through life. As you get older, naturally, you, you find yourself more and it's a bit of a cliche and just grow some kind of assurance and something to hold yourself to, I guess. I'm with you. And how much do you think phones impacted that slow burn, whether it was phones or social media or tech? Was it more the work-life balance, if you will? It's another term that's thrown off a little bit too broadly. Or could you identify some specific elements with the phone or social media or activities you were doing on the phone that you feel meaningfully contributed to that slow burn? For sure. I mean, at the time, I didn't pick up on it. It's only in hindsight, kind of drawing this. But it's everything, right? Checking it first thing in the morning and then just all day. Like it's always there to some capacity. I was just in this kind of constant state of overstimulation. So that going on that retreat, it's only, again, it's only when you take the phone away that you realize what is possible. And 
feel this deep sense of calm. I hadn't felt that for years because just living in this constant state of overstimulation. I'm sure you hear this a lot, but phones are just the next new technology that that's come along and we've had the written word and we've had all of these things. There's going to be an adjustment period and then life will go on and we'll adopt the new technology. But something is lost each time. There's obviously lots of good that comes from phones and the people growing up today who have had phones all the way through their childhood just have a almost a digital literacy that you and me don't have. But something is lost as well. And actually it does heighten anxiety, depression, kind of our, our stress levels. So I think it, it's hard to pull the two apart because it was just such an integral part of my life. Obviously still using my phone for a lot of things, less than I do back then. I mean, the good thing about doing things in the space that we're both in is that it does make you think about it every day. So that's been really helpful. But it's the interesting thing is the more you learn about it and the more you realize just the effect it's having, then if anything, you feel more addicted, right? Because you notice it more. So that it's that weird kind of paradox. You're more aware. Well, one thing I find fascinating, Hector, many people go on a silent retreat or digital detox retreat. They feel amazing for three days and then they go right back into their old habits. You come out and you start this amazing company to help people. So let's kind of transition there. And I absolutely understand the sentiment of having this life-changing experience on the retreat and then coming back and circling up with your partner. Talk about kind of the early days of Unplugged. I know you started in 2019 and, you know, COVID had this positive benefit on bookings and utilization, but talk a little bit more. What was the, I guess, what was the original vision four years or so fast forwarded now? How has that changed and what's the next chapter for the company? Yeah, for sure. So I guess the press answer at the Shine Retreat, it all pops out and came back with everything fully formed, but things don't work out like that in real life. So I actually came back from the retreat with no intention of quitting my job. So I arrived back and was just ready to get stuck into that. We were a startup. We were trying to raise a 10 million Series A at the time, burning a lot of money each month. And I had to come back for a, a leadership meeting. And two days into that, the last potential funder fell through. He said no. And so two days after I got back from the silent retreat, we had to close the US office, close the Australian office, get rid of half the company. And so that got less interesting just completely overnight. So I was running growth at the time and we paused our growth spend. So I had a week twiddling my thumbs. So that was a real pause and a perfect time for it to happen. because I was obviously feeling very zen after my time with the monks. It was in that space, you know, really kind of thinking, well, what should I do next? That it, it just started to kind of creep up. I'd like heard about a few cabin concepts before. I'd read the book, obviously, then having a chat with Ben. Rather than have this fully formed thing, it was like a good time to change and do something else. And then it was like, well, what about this? Why don't we just get a cabin up and running? I would love to go to the cabin and lock my phone in the box so we can get that up and running. And, you know, worst case, we've got that. And I think the more we talked about it, the more we explored the concept, the more we felt like we were onto something. And that has really not stopped in the last last three and a half years. Like just the more we get into this, I think the earlier it feels like we are in, in something that, that could be massive. And I think the way I'm starting to see it, before it was almost a bit of a like, yeah, we can you know, create a company doing this. And it, it seemed like quite an isolated thing. But I think the more we've got into this and grown and you start to see an impact, impact yourself impacting a wider area and it becomes more apparent that the future is a lot more malleable than we think. And actually, we see it as this very deterministic thing of everything was always going to be that way. But it really does get directed by the actions of a small group of people and those small things turn into movements. And that does take the future in a different direction. So I think the further we've gone with Unplugged, the more we've, I, I think, crystallized the belief that we can start a real movement about this or even a revolution and, and move society in a different direction. So I think, you know, we've very much started digital detoxes at cabins. Of those two, we see ourselves as a digital detox company, not a cabin company. So over time, it's just about building the, the biggest 
digital detox hospitality company in the world and creating some really incredible experiences. No, that's amazing. And you know what, what a time. I de- definitely feel there's a paradigm shift right now. And we're just in the pristine conversation of impacts of digital health and digital wellness. So it's amazing. So talk a little bit more. Someone comes to the cabin for three days. What are some things they do? Someone that's new to this and they lock their phone in, they've never done that before. What's a typical stay look like? Yeah, for sure. So it's something we thought about a lot before we launched. We thought, you know, people are going to get bored. We're going to have to put on all these activities, an agenda, all of these kind of things. We ended up not doing it. And uh, people figure it out. They fill the time. You know, they really just keep it simple. So I would say they just do the simple things. You know, they read, they walk. They talk if they're a couple. I think some of the best feedback we hear is, man, we never, we haven't just sat and talked like that for years. And then, you know, cook. So it's really just about the simple things done well. And so we're trying to design the experience so that people can just have a really great time doing those things. You know, three days goes by really quite quickly. So I think in the future, you know, we might do more experiences and you know, think about bringing people together and all of these things. But right now it's just giving people the space. What I see us as a company doing is we're just giving people those three days offline in nature. That is our goal. It's how can we actually get people offline and into nature? And you know, if we can do that, then that's a great start. And, and you can have some incredible experiences off the back of that. Yeah, baby steps. And you've built an engaging and vibrant brand. What's some of the feedback that comes back after someone has their initial stay? What are you hearing from customers? For sure. So some of the criticism we got before we launched is that this you can't change your habits in three days. Like I'm sure you've had this, right? Yeah, it's not long enough. Nothing's going to change, et cetera, et cetera. And what we found is that it's not about changing people's habits. It's about changing their perception. So I think what's been amazing to see is just how eye-opening people find spending three days offline. Because like me before the signing retreat in the Himalayas, most people have not done that for the last decade. And it's about a day offline. And some pretty profound things happen. So people realize that the world does not end. You spend a few days offline. And I think so what, we see this as doing is then starting people off on a journey towards craving more and more time offline. The momentum is towards in society, towards spending more time online. You know, you've got people walking down the street watching Netflix, like it, it's only getting, it's only increasing. And so our goal is to send that momentum in another direction. You know, and how can we start to get people excited about spending time offline? And what we found is the more time you spend offline, the more time you crave time offline. People go away from the cabin. And they implement a date night once a week where they'll go to a restaurant and just leave their phones at home. And as you say, it's little things like the compound over time. And it just starts to, because it's in those pockets where you don't have a phone that you can really reflect on exactly what role it plays in your life and when you're being dictated by your phone rather than the other way around. So I think it's really important to give people that space. And then that, that's part of the magic. And once people have seen what that's like, then it opens up so many doors. That's so important. And one thing we find in our research is just as a society, we're uncomfortable with silence. We're uncomfortable with not having some type of notification or, or something to do and just sitting with ourselves. And so it's really hard for someone to force themselves to actually be in that silence. So going to a three-day small dose retreat, that's a much easier access point than a 15-day or 30 days uh, silent meditation retreat. So I, I, I love what you're doing, and it sounds like it's adding a lot of really great value. How do you feel your, I guess, slow burn has changed? So before you were running growth for high growth company, and then now you're running another company. You're in the CEO spot and a lot of moving parts. I I know what that's like firsthand. How's your balance now? And what changes have you made personally to your routine or protocol to kind of get through and avoid that slow burn that you had before? Yeah, I think it's much better now. Like I'm not trying to take anything away from the difficulty of 
being a founder, like it's a very hard job, you know, and it doesn't get easier. It just gets harder. Uh, all the problems change. But I think, I mean, one thing I found really tough in the previous role was just feeling like stuff was out of your hands. And again, I don't think everyone should go be a founder, but there's just like, everything's difficult. You know, everyone's like being a founder is so difficult. So is sitting a job you hate for 40 hours a week with a boss you hate. So I think there's different kinds of difficult. And this has been just such a, a wonderful challenge. So I'm so grateful to get to be doing this. It's such a great feel good business to run. We have a fantastic team and, and that just makes it such a joy. I, again, because of what the business is, it gives me a lot of a chance to reflect on myself and how I can think about this. There's little things, right? Like it's two hours in the morning before checking the devices, you know, it's having three hours in the evening. Those, like the more you can reclaim that time, it, it makes all the difference because it's not just you know, an extra couple of hours each day. It's the difference between one minute in the morning and two hours. Like that's a huge, huge difference. So I think putting those things front and center and also just like reflecting on how I operate and how I run the company and just questioning the conventional wisdom. There is a real culture around, hey, if you're not running, if you're not doing 100-hour weeks as a founder, you're not going to build a huge business, you're a failure, all of that kind of stuff. And just questioning that. Like, it obviously works for some people. Like, Elon Musk is a guy who runs a very high-stress culture by the sounds of things and is building an amazing company. Maybe to build the biggest company in the world, you, you do need to do that. But I look at how well... I'm performing and, and how I can do better for the team, for our customers, for, for what we're building. I do think that, you know, being less busy, kind of looking after myself first means I turn up better everywhere else and do better as a result. So I think that learning process by reflection, by insight, by kind of observing myself has helped again, just to promote those qualities. I think again, maybe that's just me trying to rationalize that I'm actually pretty lazy as a worker. So I, I do spend a lot of time wandering around, meeting people for coffees, that kind of thing, whereas my co-founders much more spend eight hours heads down on a, a problem each day. So perhaps it's that as well. But I think, I do think we should question, is it right to just be banging away at something for 10 hours? There's amazing things that happen if you just step outside for a walk. And so much of our jobs running companies is making that next leap, that next like psychological leap, the big insight. You can be banging your head against the wall with something as a company for six months, and then one insight can completely change that. You realize you look at the problem all wrong and it just completely unlocks a, a whole new company. And so I think part of the job is making sure everything's moving and everyone's got all the support they need, et cetera, et cetera. But then part of the job is also like making those leaps and constantly questioning and rethinking what we are as a company and what we need to be doing, et cetera. Uh, and I think a lot of that does come from switching off and turning off and, and just kind of letting the subconscious mind work on it. So it's tricky. I mean, how, how do you find it? You, you obviously surrounded by the stuff, but also have a lot going on. Well, yeah, and I couldn't agree more. And you know, one thing I talk with a lot of founders about is you're missing something when you are putting in those 90 hours a week, because you know, as a founder, you need time to think and you need clear space to be able to directionally guide the company and to come up with that next vision and that next direction and to think clearly. And when you're bogged down in 10 hours a day of meetings, like you just don't have the headspace to do that. So it may sound counterproductive to a, a new founder, but having that separation and having that clear time just to think. And for some people, that's meditation. For some people, it's exercise. For some, it's just taking you know, half a day off once a week 
to walk and ponder. That's so, so critical. You raised another good point. We talk a lot about compounding. Three hours a day compounded over 20 years is effectively over five years of time. So that's massive. And people don't think about that. And even an hour a day compounded over 10, 20, 30 years, that's a lot of time. And so finding small areas that you could improve 10 minutes a day, 30 minutes a day, an hour a day, eventually three hours a day to do things that are productive and bringing you joy, those compound tremendously over the course of your life. You know, one question I have, you're coming from a position of before you had slow burn, you had this life-changing experience, and now you have this company that you're running with a completely new mindset. For your employees that maybe haven't had those first two experiences or just one of them, are they able to learn by example from your practices or do you find it challenging for them, maybe a, a greener employee to understand, okay, wow, I don't need to be working nine day hours a week. What a cool boss first off, but do, do you find any transition with any of your greener employees? You know, on one hand, want to make sure that people are looking after themselves. I think that's super important. But on the other hand, you just let people, if you work better at evenings, like whatever it is, I don't want to be the, hey, we're all going to just work in the mornings and then you know, switch off the rest of the day. Like it's just not how it works. I also go through tough periods. Like I probably the first year or year and a half after I started the company, to be honest with you, I felt like I had conquered life. Like I was just feeling so zen. Everything was so easy. Then I remember talking to an investor and he said to me, I like you, but you need to get kicked by life a few times. There's too much of this kind of naive optimism. And I have been kicked a few times in, in the last couple of years since then and definitely gone through some tougher periods. But I think what I really, really try and prioritize in my role is to turn up with a calm aura, with a smile on my face, because that makes such a difference. It's not just about the example you set. It's even just the like subconscious, like how are people feeling? Like how are they feeling about their job, about the company? If their boss is coming in stressed every day and angry every day, you know, it, it just is a lot of instability for them. So I think part of my job is just to generate a sense of calm for everyone and just give people a really supportive, good vibes. Like, again, we have people who are super driven, like they just get shit done and, and they really, really care about the mission we're on. It's not like people are motivated. So as you say, there is that risk. It goes the other way and you know, people feel like they can't take holidays and all this kind of stuff. I think you need to verbally communicate it as well. Because one thing me doing it, but it's also just need to be like, would love for you to go on holiday. Please do. If, if you need a holiday, then please, please go for it. It's just the societal expectation that your boss does not want you to go on holiday. Right? And I think that is changing. And, and there are lots of great bosses out there who do try and promote that. Because even if you take the human side out of it, like it is best for the company. You know, if someone is super burnt out and they're doing a job that involves a lot of decision making, then they're just not making good decisions or not making as good decisions as they can be. And then you put the people element back in and it's like, what is a company at the end of the day? It's literally just a group of people working towards a shared goal. And so it's all about those people. And I think, again, people see companies so hierarchical and we're all like different levels of people. But no, you're just all people. Like maybe the, the buck stops with this person and they tell this person, you know, what to work on each week. But like at the end of the day, you are just a group of people working together. And so I think really looking after those people is super important and just tuning into all the different, like everyone has different needs. So I think uh, a huge part of my job now is just understanding how everyone in the company is feeling and like jumping in. If there is some resentment, someone's frustrated or whatever it is, and just making sure everyone is, is kind of set up and supported to, to do their job, which is the real work. That sounds amazing. If anyone listening is in the UK, look up Unplugged. If they're hiring in the future, Hector would be a great boss to work for. So you see a lot of different people coming to your cabins. And you've, as a company, obviously done a lot of research on the space and continue to do a lot of research. And we're doing some great stuff together as well. Has there been anything you've learned about society's tech use that surprised you or that surprised you the most? 
Yeah, I think the biggest thing is just how simple it is of it is in every relationship and every relationship is worse off for it. Take your phones away and it really is that simple. There's some amazing research that just by having a phone switched off on the table next to two people, you reduce empathy between those people. And I think that is such an important understanding. Now, of course, you know, you can go the other way. When you take the phones away, you can, we also have couples have flaming rows in the cabins as well, because it's quite intense having no phones of, of distraction. I'm sure people break up after our experience because you take away the thing that was maybe blocking it. So I think going into this, it was very much like, Hey, this is something I'm really feeling. And then it was like, Oh, this is just like a society problem of like phones have just adopted this place in our life where they're doing so many useful things. But there are so many side effects we just don't talk about. It's just not the research out there. And obviously you're doing some amazing things on this. And it feels like there is a movement in that direction. And again, we are not out there saying tech is bad. Like we are from the tech world, love tech. Like it, it makes everything we do possible. We're very much a tech enabled company. But I think the way it's used in society today is just not helpful. Like we as humans are not set up right to use this stuff responsibly. Like I'm surprised that just taking people's phones off them for three days works as well as it does, but it really is pretty profound. We brought up an interesting point, the phone on the lunch table, even if it's turned off. We do a lot of studies with athletes and having the phone physically attached to you while you're on a workout or jog, even if you're not looking at it, that negatively impacts the workout, muscle atrophy, uh, the overall experience. So that's something really fascinating about the physical connection and touch to a device that by removing that, hence with your cabins or on a retreat or if you're at the dinner table or if you're working out, it has a really, really interesting psychological impact for the positive. And you, you brought up another good point, just how prolific it is across society. And one thing we found, and I know you've seen as well, it, there isn't any corner of the globe outside of some very rare tribes that don't have any technology at all that are not impacted by phones and social media. It's absolutely fascinating. And every age group from birth to death. So this isn't something just for Gen Z that's causing an issue. This isn't just for married couples. It's prolific across all age groups. Am I correct that folks come into your cabins? It's mostly, I mean, all adults, obviously, but ranging from what, early 20s to older couples? What's the kind of primary demographic? Yeah, we probably, with the couples, we're probably ranging from, I would say, we get a few late teens, but but mostly early 20s to maybe up to like 40. And then we, we, we do get a few older people, old couples, and then individuals, you, you'll get a broader range, actually. So we, we do get a few people in a slightly older age demographic coming on their own, just a thing can journal, et cetera. Uh, and then we do have cabins coming soon with an extra bed. So we're starting to see more toddlers. We get a lot of requests for people to bring kids, teenagers, et cetera. So super interested to see how that one all goes down. I can't wait to hear about that. We're doing a lot of studies with teens as well. So we'll have to compare notes. I think it's also incredibly important for couples, especially couples that have kids. We talk about the mindset needed to grow a company and to have that clear space to be thinking about direction and vision. Same thing when you're growing a family, when you're constantly bogged down with playdates and school and homework and work and phones and technology and dinner and everything. You don't have time to think about the clear vision for the family goals, the family values. And sometimes you could accomplish that with a date night with no phones. But something like this, where you're spending three days with your spouse just to connect and regroup, adds a lot of value, not just to the individual, but to the family unit. Have you seen any of that anecdotally with any of your customers? Yeah, for sure. It's interesting. We haven't had kind of, I guess we've had less family-specific feedback but certainly relationships has been the biggest surprise i thought this was going to be people going on their own and reading writing etc but like 
it's overwhelmingly couples really feeling like they've spoken properly for the first time in, in years. So that's been awesome to see. We've had lots of engagements. We've had a couple of confirmed babies conceived. I'm sure we've had some divorces as well. So yeah, I think we've really uh, seen a lot in that stage of life and, and the family stage is one we haven't quite got to yet. But yeah, really interested to see how, how that goes as well. I'm sure, I'm sure we've had some guests, but nothing particular springs to mind. No, it makes sense. You brought up a point at the start of the conversation of how the phone might just be another technology throughout generations. There's always been something new that's been distracting and we eventually evolve. Do you feel this is different though? And I suppose at every generational juncture, someone says, well, this time it's different, but do you feel this is different? And I think we could separate phone, that's a broad term, and then what you do on the phone. So let's maybe talk specifically about social media and where I'm going with this is, so where I'm going with this is what responsibility do you feel big tech has for social media, the algorithms they're developing, AI, et cetera? Yeah, it's really interesting. So I think obviously mentioned previous technologies. And as you say, it always feels like this time is different. And everyone always says that, but also it is always different. It's always like a bit different and history surprises us, constantly surprises us. So I think you know, I'm optimistic about the future in terms of this and, and everything else generally think humans are pretty good in the longer term, that like we break a lot of stuff in the short term, especially just how kind of fast we're progressing. And, and then there's a the question of progress, the right thing, full stop. I think one good analogy I heard the other day is, and I don't know whether it's true or not, so have to fact check me, but that the seatbelt wasn't invented for something like 30 years after the car came. And it maybe feels a bit like that with social media now, where it's come out, there are lots of problems. There are lots of societal issues with, with social media and as we think about solving them, it really does have to come from the social media companies, perhaps in tandem with the government and whoever else, but fundamentally they have the control over these platforms and the system needs to be redesigned because there are some great things about social media, but there are some real issues as well. I think it'll take time and take a long time. Also, I do think that we will just kind of become maybe just a more shallow, kind of mentally shallow in, in the way we develop and just more of this kind of instant gratification. Humans are evolving all the time in terms of how we live. Like we have really changed since the written word. You know, Socrates famously was very against the written word. You know, he was like, this is a disaster for humanity because he grew up in an oral culture where, you know, you would give massively long speeches by heart. And he thought that promoted memory, it promoted virtue as a result and just how you reason. And maybe he was right. Like maybe we did lose that. But obviously the written word has also brought about lots of surprising benefits. So I do think that there will be pros of this next technology shift, but you know, there will be all these unforeseen changes. And as with anything, then there's always an opportunity to do the opposite. There's lots of benefits to be had. Like you hear amazing stories about CEOs who still don't have email, right? And it's just so much space to think. And so when you have this society that is just getting more and more instant gratification, always going to be huge benefits to you as an individual to take that step back to unplug and take time off. So yeah, I'm optimistic. I think we will figure it out society. I think we are in a bit of a fallout period now. It'll take time. It does need to come from the social media companies, but I'm sure it will. I, I think it will take time though. And how long we, we shall see. You know, it's an interesting analogy with the car and the seatbelt. It made me think of smoking and, and tobacco companies where there was a, a pretty long period between start of smoking and, the, and uh, then the science that came out, you know, showing the awful detriments of smoking and then the government catch up to ban ads, et cetera. So at least in the United States. Yeah, I, I guess on that, it might be that it's not these social media companies, right? A different social media comes along. 
because you know, these companies are built around this kind of attention economy. And it might be that they are not the right things to change, but you know, everything passes. Every institution ever has kind of fallen at some point. So these social media companies will go to, maybe we have to wait until the next one's come along or, or whatever that is. It won't be a social media at all. So, so because all the incentives are towards them not changing. So it'll be interesting to see. No, interesting. And, and for someone that's addicted to Instagram or TikTok, what, what advice would you give them as the best solution to just delete the app so you're not pulled into it while we're waiting for companies to change or government or whatever it is, whatever the seatbelt solution is, what, what, what do you recommend folks to do in the meantime? Yeah, I had stumbled across a really lovely idea the other day. So up to my meditation at the moment and changed what I'm doing. So now it's very kind of mindfulness focused. So we'll spend 45 minutes twice a day, sat down, just focused on my breath and reading a book that kind of talks you through it. You thought there's not much to it, but it's talking you through the kind of different stages of dealing with distractions, basically. And one of the early bits of advice they give in the book is that when you realize you've been distracted and bring your attention back to the breath, then instead of judging yourself and being, oh God, you know, I'm rubbish at this, like keep getting distracted, be grateful and kind of give yourself a pat on the back. Be like, yes, I, I managed to catch that distraction and now I'm focused on my breath. So what I would say to people who are addicted, which is probably all of us and want to spend less time on these things is first of all, start small. So just spend half an hour, put it in a drawer for half an hour and see how that feels. And two is like, rather than beat yourself up because you're scrolling through TikTok at three in the morning, be pleased with yourself when you put it away and when you switch it off and get it away and, and just celebrate the wins, celebrate those small wins. And over time, I think that just forms a more positive view. And that, that's hard, right? Like I feel like as a society, you know, we all beat ourselves up around how we deal with these things and our various addictions and, and whatever it might be. So I think it's a nice lesson for life. Appreciate that, that sentiment. Start fresh, clean slate, and don't put too much pressure on yourself. That's beautiful. What, what are your thoughts on AI? Or let me rephrase, what are you seeing some of the biggest impacts of AI right now? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think, you know, these things are always overblown in the moment, right? So as you say, AI has been around for a long time. Obviously, earlier this year, when ChatGPT came out, then we all realized just what was possible. And I think it took the world by surprise, including OpenAI. So again, it changes everything. But then this time is not different to, to some extent. There's obviously fears that we are just dealing with the unknown now and this kind of spiraling complexity. There are much better placed people than me to contribute to that debate of, is this going to turn into some cataclysmic situation? I think in terms of how it affects our life, I look at how it affects my life. It definitely is super useful for all of the kind of mundane stuff. Like if anything, it's just accelerating, automating stuff out. But personally, what I feel like I'm doing when I'm using AI is I'm like outsourcing my thinking. I know some people use it to coach them and all of these kind of things. But I do think something's lost again. For example, I write a weekly newsletter and I could write that much quicker with AI, but it's not having the thing written at the end. It's going through the process of writing it. Like that's everything I get from that process. That's why I'm doing it. So I think AI is going to change everything just like the internet changed everything. It will probably happen slower than people think. Is it different? Yes, it's always different. But in, in many ways, it's also not. Like, it is just the next technological leap. Our lives are unrecognizable in, in many ways. Again, we're spending 11 hours a day on, on smartphones. Like, how much of a departure is that from what we were doing a few years ago? So I think AI is just the next acceleration that that will happen in many surprising ways. I'm not anticipating, I'm sure. And a lot of it will be behind the scenes. And I think what it does is it just transitions how we spend our time, what our jobs are, like it just changes that, right? Like it, it just moves along to the next thing. Like I, I don't buy this, hey, we're suddenly only going to be working 10 hours a week. People were saying that 100 years ago when machines came along. 
and it's never happened. So, you know, people have been calling that one for, for centuries. So I don't think AI means the end of anything, the end of work, the end of all of these things. I think it just changes how humans spend their time. Yeah, I agree. I think it's fascinating, though, how many different areas of life it's popping up. We have a podcast coming about the Hollywood and how AI is completely changing how movies are being made, how scripts are being written. And I mean, they're in the middle of strikes right now over it. It's it's fascinating. And you know, with ChatGPT, we've had dozens of conversations in the last couple of weeks with high schools, and they're trying to catch up to figure out how do they deal with writing assignments because kids are coming in with completely written ChatGPT homework assignments. It happened so fast. Last year this time, I don't think it was as accessible, at least at the high school level, but now it's every kid is using it to write papers. You know, schools move slow, districts move slow, and they're trying to catch up and figure out what's our policy, how do we deal with this, because kids aren't aren't writing at all. It's just, it's a fascinating problem. That's just one example. We're seeing it pop up in a lot of different and interesting ways with teens, with adults, with so many different industries. But I'm with you. I don't think it's the end of the world. I don't think all of a sudden AI robots are going to be doing absolutely everything and uh, we're going to be left to, to zero jobs. That said, I think it's going to be faster in some ways than in the past when we've seen evolutionary changes happen. So it's very, very interesting. But I want to talk a little bit about connection. You had a, a point earlier on one end with social media. I'm curious if you agree there's a, a lack of human connection. But then second, we're starting to see this huge uptick in AI influencers and AI dating bots, right? And so now you're completely removing human connection. So I'm curious if you've seen any of that and if you have any thoughts. It's a really interesting point. I mean, first of all, I do think that our perception of reality is our reality, right? So we all have this world going on in our head. If someone is very lonely and they find companionship with an AI bot, that brings them what they need. Who am I to hit on that? Again, you're like, you're putting a bandaid over something that you probably want to be solving at the source, right? It's like, it might soothe some of the loneliness and all of these things in our society, but it doesn't replace what we were kind of biologically intended to do, which is to interact with humans and, and live in these kind of small, tight-knit communities. I think even the quantity of relationships we have nowadays is unhealthy, right? Like we are built to live in little tribes of people and there's the Dunbar number, which is you can only really be friends with 150 people at one time. Like we are not constitutionally built to be interacting with thousands and thousands of people and exposed to billions of people, connected to billions of people over the internet. So I think that's a really interesting point. I'm not actually on Twitter. I do think it has its merits, but I've just never taken that leap. You know, you, you just get people just trashing each other because you remove all kind of empathy. I even find Zoom calls that we as a team are hybrids. So we'll meet Monday, Friday, and then people work remote during the week. And, you know, over email or even Zoom calls or in Slack, there is just a lot less empathy and it's much easier to get for people to get wound up with each other. And, you know, when you're sitting across from someone, I'm, I'm not saying people can't get wound up with each other when they're in the same room. That obviously happens too, but there's just a deeper level of connection that you can achieve because we're built for that, right? Like we're built to pick up on all these little cues you know, to pick up on the body language, to pick up on what's happening in the room. And I think. That's lost. I, I really think it's lost for social media. AI, as you say, like everything is just advancing so much quicker. So I don't know where AI ends up with that. Like I can absolutely believe that AI can get to a point where it can perfectly mimic a human online, of course. Can you bring that into the physical world? Probably not. Is VR going to take off? So I think it's back to basics. You're kind of seeing it with diet now, right? Where, you know, we've had just all this processed food, all these multivitamins, all these things. And then all of the experts, you know, all of the kind of research coming out is like, 
maybe we should just be eating what people were eating 10,000 years ago. And everything we've done since has, has just made the problem worse. So I, I get the impression it will be the same kind of thing here. Whereas you can probably use AI to solve the loneliness we have in society, well, not to solve it, but to treat the loneliness we have in society. But you know, fundamentally, you, you're just putting a bandaid over a, a wound you don't want in the first place. And the way you solve that is by just returning to the roots. We're built to have these kind of very strong, few relationships. And I think that's always going to win out. And, and so in a world where everything is online, you've got all the social media, all this AI interaction, there's going to be more and more joy from spending this real time together and really experiencing true human connection. 100% and a topic of a different episode all about teams. But if we look at empathy and the ability to read human cues, that's something that Gen Z, specifically high schoolers, are, are losing right now. And a lot of the data is showing a decrease in empathy, decrease in the ability to communicate and relate to others. And so what's happening is they're going through high school they're getting out into the real world into college, and they, they just don't have those communication and empathy skills. It's very, very scary. So a lot of the work we do is on the high school level and the, and the teen level. How can we help some of this young generation learn some of these valuable skills? And you know, instead of 12 hours a day on TikTok, let's tone that back. Let's compound a few extra hours and get some time back to you know, learn these valuable skills that they're going to use the rest of your life. But it's a fascinating time we're in. So, you know, one question, we're, we're almost wrapped up here, Hector. What's something, what's a hobby that you have unrelated to tech that doesn't involve your phone or anything technology that you wish you could do more of, that you wish you could allocate more time to? The thing that came to mind, first of all, is, is just reading. Like, I, I was actually a pretty dyslexic kid. So I have a twin sister who's a voracious reader from a very young age. I was fairly illiterate until the age of about 10. And then it's only in the last, I would say, four or five years that I've really kind of developed a love for reading. Actually, some advice from Nabel Ravikant on a podcast where he said, read what you love until you love to read. You know, we all feel like we also have, have that book that feels like a chore to get through and it just takes the fun out of reading. So for whatever reason, that has just really, really clicked with me in the last four or five years. And I think I've discovered a bit of an inner introvert. And, you know, I just get so much joy now with just, you know, if I have an evening in, I'll, I'll just spend a you know, good two, three hours just, just sat down with a book and, I think there's something about a physical book where just, just the kind of depth of experience, like it's literally just you and the author. And there's something about the kind of slow pace of reading that just allows the subconscious minds to kind of make all these connections and, and ponder things in the background. So yeah, I find that an incredibly enriching activity just from both from a sense of like developing my kind of calm and balance and, and also just understanding of the world of reality. Like you can gain so much from you know, reading fiction, from reading history biographies, like whatever it is. And I'd like the phrase earned wisdom, where if you watch TikTok video, you know, you might get a little tactic from there, but it's just going to kind of go away again. But if you spend 20 hours reading a biography of someone you want to emulate, then, you know, you're spending 20 hours sitting with that person, understanding that person and just really kind of living and feeling and experiencing it. And I think that really does something profound. So yeah, I, I always wish I could be really more, read a fair amount now, but Sometimes I just want to go and spend a month in a, a cabin with a good pile of books. That's beautiful. I love that. It's interesting you say that on a recent uh, study we did. That was one thing that uh, specifically looking at adults that they, it's a hobby that they had given up over the last three or four years because they've gotten more addicted to social media. So, you know, when asked what's something that you used to do that you don't do as much anymore, more often than not, a book or reading came up and wow, I used to read so much. I used to read X amount of books a year or a month and now I don't read at all in trying to get back that, that valuable habit. So I appreciate that. How can people stay in touch with what Unplug's doing? How can they book a cabin, keep on track with your career? Let us know how to get to stay on top. 
For sure, for sure. Well, we are unplugged.rest on Instagram, ironically, and then same with the URL. Find me on LinkedIn, sadly not on social media, but also write a newsletter, which is unplugging.substack.com. Please reach out whenever, always, always can chat with people and uh, you know, explore what else is going on in the space. But yeah, awesome to chat for us. Very excited to have you in the UK when you do finally move. Yeah, I appreciate that, Hector. I can't wait to stay at a cabin next to visit and we'll have to have you on the show again. Thanks so much for joining today. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Tech Reset Show. Tech Reset is brought to you by Digital Detox, who helps people in over 80 countries improve tech life balance. You could learn more about our products and services and also get your free Dora score at digitaldetox.com. We appreciate your support and look forward to seeing you again soon.